0: Good morning Sun Valley Church. Um, I'm uh, pleased to be able to make a happy announcement. Uh, At the end of the year, as the elders uh, considered the abundance that God has provided for our church through your giving, we were able to, as a church, give uh, some gifts for the sake of missions. Um, I talked to Dwight Hires, and they have a goal of raising $35,000 for um, five to eight new church plants in the next few years throughout Mexico. And we were able to contribute $7,500 to that fund. And also, in addition to that, give another $1,000 to each of our missionary families. So we are so grateful to be able to participate in that way. So thank you. Now, um, I'm wondering if you like hypotheticals. You know, what would you do if? Well, how about this? What if, now don't gnash your teeth at me when I say, what if President Biden called you up? And, okay, what if President Biden calls you up and gives you an invitation to come to the White House to consult with him about what you think is the most pressing problem facing America and what to do about it? Right, opportunity of a lifetime. You know, all expenses paid, maybe they'll send, you know, a, a military airplane um, for you and you go, and he asks you, okay, so what is our greatest need as a nation and how do we address it? What's, what, are your, what is your answer? Is, is it that you think we need to get inflation under control and curb government spending? Is it that we need to give constitutional protection to the unborn and immediately close every abortion clinic? or protect the rights of citizens to keep and bear arms? Maybe address ethnic tensions and work for justice and peace? Or maybe ensuring tamper-proof elections? What would you say? I mean, we all of us have an idea of what the biggest problems facing our country and our world are. But what do you think Jesus would say in that situation? You know, we're speculating, and we always have to be careful when we speculate with Jesus. But I think if we look how Jesus teaches us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, we get an idea of what he might say if he were in that place of consultation, which he wouldn't be because everyone would be bowing before him. But but what would he say? Well, open to Matthew 6 with me, if you would. We're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer once again, and particularly... In verse 9, we're going to be looking at hallowed be your name, but to give us context, I'm going to read verses 5 through 13. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Well, today we're going to focus on those four words, hallowed be your name, which make up what's often called the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, the first request. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the first priority is that God's name would be honored, which is what hallowed means. And of all the things that could have first place, of all the most important things that a person could pray about, Jesus teaches us to pray first that God would be exalted. And I think Jesus' answer to the question, what's wrong in America and how do we fix it, would be that God is not exalted and he needs to be. That God is not exalted, but he should be. And as we consider these profound words, hallowed be your name, let's look back for just a moment on how Jesus brought us to the point of praying this. Oh, well, we saw in verses 5 through 8 that we need to pray in a God-centered way, rather than in a way that draws attention to ourselves. And we need to pray thoughtfully, rather than babbling on like those who don't know God, who think that just because they rack up words, God's going to hear them. And then he gets into the Lord's Prayer with what's called the address. The address. In other words, to whom do we pray? Well, we pray we come before our Father in heaven, and to come before God as Father means to come to God on intimate terms as those who have been adopted into his family through Jesus. That's what we looked at last time. We have a close and familiar relationship with God because he loves us and he gave his son for us. That we never forget, though, that while we do come to him as our Father, we come to him as our Father in heaven. That is, he is exalted. We come to him with reverence because he's holy. And that's how Jesus brings us to this first petition. Our prayers are to be God-centered, thoughtful, intimate, and reverent. And in that way, we come to God with six requests found in the Lord's Prayer. The first of them, the first three of them actually, squarely focused on God's glory. Squarely focused on God's glory. Because this is our greatest need. To know and exalt God. Because that's what we were made to do. We were made to bring Him glory and we're most satisfied and happy when He is most glorified. You could say that God's glory is our greatest good. It's why we exist, to show God's greatness. And while many people use the Lord's Prayer as if it was just a formula to pray with repetition, Jesus isn't saying pray exactly these words and that's it. What he's doing is he's giving us categories for how to approach God, how to think about our relationship with him and the things we bring before him. And if I could sum up this first petition hallowed be your name, with one main point it would be this, that our greatest passion must be God's greatest glory in everything and everywhere. Okay? Our greatest passion must be God's greatest glory in everything and everywhere. And so let's see how this idea plays out in this first petition, by first considering what it means to know God by knowing his name. And then, looking at ways in which God's name is despised, and then finally, by asking, how can we exalt God's name the way that Jesus teaches us to pray here? And so let's look at what it means to know God. See, Jesus tells us to pray, hallowed be your name, and he begins by focusing here on God's name. So we begin our prayers by knowing God. And that's where God's name comes into it because we have to understand that in biblical terms, God's name is who he is. God's name is who he is. And for us as Americans, this point is easily lost on us because names don't mean that much and people are naming their kids Starlight and other things that we're just, where, where does this come from? Is your grandmother named Starlight? I don't know. But the, you know, names don't mean that much to us. But they did in scripture. They did in scripture. So Noah, for example, His father says um, by naming him Noah, which means rest, he says this one will give us relief from our work. He will give us rest from our work. And in a sense, I guess you could say they did get rest. I mean, they died in the flood. But when God confirmed his covenant with Abram to give him a multitude of descendants, God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Name is important. And if you know anything about Jacob in Genesis, then you'll see how fitting it was that his name means he takes by the heel, or he cheats. And then he meets God, and God wrestles him down and subdues him, and he changes his name to Israel, which means he strives with God, and the people of Israel ever since have certainly done that. You see, in scripture, a name is synonymous with the person whose name it is. And Jesus' disciples who were taught this prayer, they knew how rich a name's meaning is. And they knew, just like we do, that sometimes a name drudges up disgust or anger or bitterness because you've had difficult interactions with a person. Or a name could bring a smile to your face just by its being spoken because that person is the epitome of joy and beauty and peace. Well, when it comes to God, we need to think of his name in terms of God himself, okay? God's name is God's character. It's his perfections. It's who he is. And so how do we know God's name? How do we know who he is? Well, God's name is revealed in his word and in his works. It's revealed in his word and in his works. He shows us in the Bible. He shows us in all that he's made in creation. He shows us in how he has acted throughout history, exactly who he is. His name is revealed in his word and in his works. I mean, when we look at the cosmos, especially on a starry night, we see that God's name is glorious. In Psalm 19, David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. See, God reveals himself his power, his eternal nature, it says in Romans 1, in what he's made. Everybody can see it. Everybody knows in their heart how great God is. And when we see how God redeemed his people out of Egypt, the way that we just read in Exodus 3, and how he continues to show them faithful, loving kindness, even through rebellion after rebellion after rebellion, we see that God is merciful. We see that he's a God of grace. He's a God of love, who never abandons his people. And so in Psalm 75, Asaph says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. We open God's word and we see God revealing himself. He tells us who he is. He reveals his name and he shows us who he is by what he does. Okay." And if you do a study on the names of God, you find out exactly how great he is. You find out that he's a rock. He's a refuge for his people. He provides for them. We see that God's name is important and it's full of meaning. I mean, does it ever bother you when people get your name wrong, especially for the 10th or 12th or 15th time? I mean... We, we, we get annoyed by that kind of thing, and usually it's not that big a deal, but no matter how many times I tell someone at some company over the phone that my name is Whitmer with an I, W-I, they say, okay, W-H-I-T, you know, we can't find you in the database. And I'm like, yeah, you think? Because I just told you there's no H. <laughs> and then I repent, and we get on with it, and hopefully they don't know that I'm tired of that for the past 36 years. But here's my point. I don't care that much about the age, I just, I'm a sinner. My point is that if we, as Americans, for whom names don't mean that much, get annoyed when people get our name wrong, how much more important do you think it is that we would get God's name right? That we would think right thoughts about him? That we would speak true things about him? That we would represent him accurately? Yes, friends, theology matters. Because as we speak of God, so we handle his name. He is Yahweh, the God of Israel, who revealed his name to Moses in the burning bush. The covenant name of God, Yahweh, is so holy and revered that Jews throughout the centuries stopped using it. And they substituted it with other names because they didn't want to mistreat God's name. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And he identifies himself as the Lord, Yahweh. His unchanging self-existence and covenant faithfulness to his people as their Lord is communicated in the divine name. Or consider how Jesus teaches us here in the Lord's Prayer to address God as Father, which we've already seen means that he is tender and gracious and loving towards his people. He cares about you. He cares about me. Or what about the name that is above every name? that at the name of Jesus, we're told in Philippians 2, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, when God became one of us in Jesus, the angel told Joseph, his father by lineage, not not his biological father, but the father who got to name him, he said, name him Jesus, why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God, and we know God's name through God's Son. God's name is who he is, and he is lovely. We know God by knowing his names and by studying his word and works. Jesus tells us to pray that his name would be hallowed, to pray that he would be exalted and glorified. That must be the heart of our prayers as Christians. If you want to make sure you've got the right priority in prayer, then then marshal all of your prayers to this one purpose, that God would be glorified. In a few minutes, we'll specifically see how God's name is exalted, but I want to spend a moment considering how God's name is despised, which is the opposite of it being hallowed. If we are to hallow God's name, it would be nice to know what the pitfalls are so that his name wouldn't be despised. And this brings us back to that meeting at the White House where you get a chance to tell the president what you think our biggest problem is as a nation. See, if we're taking our cues from Jesus, we could say that our biggest problem in the world today is that God's name is despised. All of the problems that we face flow downstream from that. God's name being despised. That we do not honor God. And let's look at two ways that his name is not honored. And then we'll look at a real-time example of that. Well, I'd suggest that first God's name is despised when, he is disregarded. when he's disregarded. Now, what does it mean to disregard God? Well, it means to ignore him. It means to act like he's not there. To ignore his truth and deny his works. To prop up false idols and false narratives and false hopes for how the world works. It looks like seeing the truth of God everywhere and then acting as if God hadn't revealed anything. I'd actually invite you to turn with me for just a moment to Romans chapter 1. To Romans chapter 1. Because this is exactly what the apostle does as he's beginning to show us what the human condition is apart from Christ. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read from verses 18 to 22. Keep in mind that God's name is despised when he is disregarded. God has always been revealing his name, specifically his power and his divinity, his eternity. Everybody since the dawn of time have been able to look at just, the, at just the world that God has made, and even now more at the cosmos through the technology that we have to see into deep space. And we know this didn't just happen. It is hardwired in the human soul and in the human consciousness to know that we belong to God that he created us, and that he is good, that we are accountable to him. But Paul says that what we have done in our sinfulness is to suppress that truth. We don't erase it. We can't make it disappear. We suppress it by sin, and that's what the world has been doing ever since sin entered it, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But God clearly speaks to the point that no matter how deeply a person is in denial about God, It says here in verse 20, they are without excuse. They are without excuse. Nobody will be able to stand before God at the judgment and to say, I just didn't know. If I had only known. He'll say, yeah, you knew. You knew. And especially for us as Americans, he'll say, I gave you the scriptures in a million translations and you sing about my son at Christmas. Well, verse 21 it says, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They disregarded God. This is what our culture has perfected. God's name is despised when he is disregarded. By his mercy, all of us who are in Christ have had our blindness turned to sight. Our rejection turned to embrace. His wrath for us turned to mercy. And yet we live in the midst of a corrupt generation. Whenever a believer ignores the God who saved him, or an unbeliever acts like God hasn't clearly revealed himself, God's name is despised. And there is no excuse. But a second way that God's name is despised is when his word is disobeyed. Because an important idea of Jesus' words, hallowed be your name, is that, when, is that God would be obeyed. That's what we're praying for, that God would be obeyed. We cannot hallow his name in active disobedience. When he speaks, he's honored when people listen, and he's dishonored and despised when they disobey. When we as Christians know God's word and choose to disobey it, this is to despise God's name, and it's a serious matter. When Israel returned from Babylonian captivity, Things started to go well, they rebuilt the temple, God sent them a couple prophets, they began to walk with God, they learned their lesson, but over the course of about a hundred years, the people and the priests began to go back to their old sins, and the last Old Testament writing prophet, Malachi, addresses it. God, through Malachi, calls them to repentance, and he says, "...a son honors his father and a servant his master." If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. They had disregarded God's word and his commands. Wherever God is disregarded and his word is disobeyed, his name is despised. And as Christians, if we find ourselves doing this, as the Holy Spirit convicts us, the way forward is to repent immediately and return and find mercy once again through Christ because God forbid that we should despise his name. And thanks be to God, he promises that through through a lifetime of walking with him, he will chip away at our disobedience and we will enjoy him more and obey him more. And he will sanctify all his people because he keeps his promises. He is Yahweh. Today's January 16th, a day when many faithful pastors in Canada, and even more in the U.S., are addressing a grievous sin in Canada, a sin that I want to take a moment to consider, a sin that I think has everything to do with this petition, Hallowed Be Your Name. The Canadian Parliament just recently passed Bill C-4 with unanimous consent, which means that every single parliamentarian, conservative or and progressive, now just think about that, every single conservative together with every single progressive approved this. And there was resounding applause for a very long time when it passed. The bill targets parents and counselors or pastors who would offer biblical counsel to those who are same-sex attracted or who are transgender. What it does is it criminalizes, I'm not exaggerating, it criminalizes any kind of counsel to help someone who is homosexual to embrace the human sexuality that God has designed. It makes it illegal to promote any kind of counsel that helps someone who is transgender to embrace God's design for them as either a biological male or female. And for those who are convicted, it carries a sentence of up to five years in prison. I'm not in the habit of reading uh, legislation from the pulpit, but I'm going to today. I have Bill C-4 from the website of the Canadian Parliament. This is unedited. This is is the law there. It went into effect on the 8th. I'm just going to read a summary of the bill and then part of the preamble. Listen to this. This enactment amends the criminal code to, among other things, create the following offenses. A, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, which, according to the bill, is anything that would um, counsel a transgender person or homosexual person to what they call being cisgender, which means male or female, and being heterosexual, okay? Both things of which go back to, you know, the Garden of Eden the way that God designed it. So it causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, that's now a crime. Doing anything for the purpose of removing a child from Canada with the intention that the child undergo conversion therapy outside Canada. So if you're a Canadian parent and your child is struggling, you can't bring them to the US for biblical counsel, you'll be prosecuted. C, promoting or advertising conversion therapy, and D, receiving a financial or other material benefit from the provision of conversion therapy there is there there can be a difference between biblical counseling and conversion therapy but hear me now biblical counseling absolutely would aim at that goal of helping somebody to embrace the sexuality that god has designed for them and created for them from birth now here's the world view behind this here's the reason this gained consent this is right here in the law in the preamble Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth, okay, according to Canadian law, the myth of heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, which means male and female, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth, The idea that these are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions, this is a myth and is harmful to society, according to Canadian law. And here's what that means in Canada. If a counselor or pastor helps someone who is same-sex attracted to repent, he's breaking the law and can be fined and go to prison. If a counselor or pastor helps someone who's transgender to be a man or a woman that God created them to be, he's breaking the law and can be fined and go to prison. If a pastor teaches that God created the human race as male and female and that men can only glorify God as men and women can only glorify God as women, they can be fined and go to prison for up to five years. If a Christian has a homosexual or transgendered friend, who they're sharing the gospel with, and then the Christian encourages them to seek biblical counsel to help walk in God's will, they can go to prison. The government of Canada, friends, is despising God's name. According to Romans 13, civil government is given by God to be a blessing that promotes and protects good and punishes and restrains evil. But no human government gets to define what is right or wrong or good or evil for themselves. That's where we got into the mess of sin in the first place. They're only allowed to look to God's word and, define, and to God's character and to determine based on that what right and wrong truly are and then to act accordingly. That's the whole point. What Canada has done is to criminalize good and protect evil, and God's name is despised, not exalted. And make no mistake, every member of parliament, conservative and progressive, will stand before the throne of God and give an account for how they discharged the duty God gave them. Marriage and human sexuality are under constant assault in Canada and in our nation and in developed nations around the world. And if you think about it, that makes total sense theologically, because what do you do to a God you despise. You assault his image. And at the beginning we're told that God made us in his image. And the Bible opens with God creating man in his image as what? Male and female. And the LGBTQIA revolution takes aim at destroying that image. The Bible opens with a marriage and it ends with a marriage supper. The church is called the bride of Christ. And homosexuality and homosexual marriage defiles that gospel-promoting image. Transgenderism exalts itself above God and seeks to remove him and and remake him in, in its image. And in contrast to this, Jesus teaches us to pray, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And so as God's people, our greatest passion must be God's greatest glory in everything and in everywhere including Canada, in the United States, Washington, Yakima. Jesus is Lord of all, and one day those who defile his image will stand before him and give an account. And to that end, we pray for mercy. We pray that the Father will turn the hearts of Canadian politicians from folly to wisdom and from madness to truth, and that today, the very people who despise his name tomorrow would exalt and bow before him in repentance. To that end, we pray that the people of Canada would not look to Bill C4, but to 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 for the truth they need. The truth which says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen, the text doesn't end there. I'm sure that somebody watching online or maybe even someone here might think, well, this is all sounding very harsh and doesn't sound like the Christ I know. Well, let me tell you, the Christ you know died for this so that the rest of this verse might be true. This is the hope, ready? For you and for me and for anybody struggling with any sin, but such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, there is mercy and grace and peace and joy for all who repent and believe in Christ. And aren't you glad? Hear what I'm saying. And hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that homosexuality and transgenderism are the unpardonable sins or that they separate you from God any more than pride or greed or covetousness. The way I read it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? And Jesus died for all. All all must turn away from their allegiance to sin, whatever the sin, and trust in Christ for forgiveness and follow him as Lord, okay? But what I am saying is that for a society to embrace increasing levels of sexual perversion is a Romans one mark of deepening depravity, and God is very clear about what that means. It means that unless there is repentance, there will be judgment. We should expect judgment on Canada. We should expect judgment on the United States to the degree that we will walk in these perversions and not repent. There's one hope, Jesus who died for your greed and my lust and for the homosexuality of Corinthian Christians in the first century and anybody today who will walk in repentance. Men must live as men, women must live as women, marriage must be between one man and one woman and God must define our identity. And thanks be to God, Ephesians 1 tells us exactly what that is. We are in Christ. We belong to him. And our greatest passion must be his greatest glory in everything and everywhere. Jesus died for sinners like us so that we would pray, hallowed be your name. And let's pray for our Canadian brothers and sisters who are under this law now. Let's pray that today... The pastors who are standing in their pulpits, and they're relatively few and far between in Canada. That's a whole different situation among the church up there. But let's pray that today, when they get out of their churches, they won't be going into prisons. Because now they could. At the heart of the Lord's prayer is this petition that God's name be exalted and honored. Not disregarded and despised. And in terms of the Lord's Prayer, what we could say is that every other petition flows from this. Every other, your kingdom come and your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us. All are under this, that God's name would be exalted. That God's name would be exalted. And so I'd like to finish now by looking at this prayer and asking exactly how this happens. How is God's name exalted? What are we praying for when we pray, hallowed be your name? Well, first I would suggest that God's name is exalted when his gospel is believed. God's name is exalted when his gospel is believed. It was precisely as Jesus was looking to the cross that he said these words in John 12. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again." Well, when would the Father glorify his name again? It was at the cross. It was as his sinless Son saved sinful people like us and bled to death. God's name is exalted most supremely in the gospel as his Son hangs for sinners and rises again. And God's name is exalted when that gospel is believed this is the hope of the world and this is exactly what saved the sinners at corinth that it's exactly what saves you and me paul says you are washed you are sanctified you were justified in the name of christ and to the degree that you were saved sanctified and justified which means completely god's name is exalted when we pray that sinners would bow to christ his name is exalted when sinners turn to jesus and find salvation his name is exalted my friend do you believe the gospel Do you trust in Christ for your salvation? If not, you can never exalt God. But if you do, if you do, an entire life of meaningful prayer, hallowed be your name, is opened. God's name is also exalted when he is esteemed by those who do believe. You see, it's one thing to know who God is and another thing entirely to esteem and honor him in your heart. There are countless people who know the gospel and even believe it, but there are less who truly study God and his works so that they would treasure him. Read Psalm 78 sometime soon. The entire psalm, is written so that future generations would know God and exalt his name. It's a study of his faithfulness and his mercy to Israel throughout their history and how God brought them the king, David, from whose line would come the Messiah. Meditate on God's works in history because that's what leads us to esteem him. Psalm 34, which part of which we saw on the overhead before the service, is the psalmist looking at God's mercy in his life which prompts him to explode with this invitation. Come, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. God's name is esteemed as his works and his word are studied. So I would ask, do you esteem God's name? Is it precious to you? Is it precious? Or is God's name a casual throwaway in a conversation, perhaps even a swear word from time to time on your lips? Friend, God's name is exalted when he is esteemed, and he is esteemed when he is studied in his word and works. And so study God, study God, and through that study, let the words of God lead you to the same throne of grace around which angels and saints bow and proclaim, Holy, 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 When we see God for who he is, his name is exalted and hallowed be your name takes on a whole new meaning. And as you esteem him, determine to obey him in all that he says because God's name is exalted when his word is obeyed. His name is exalted when his word is obeyed. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus tells us earlier in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells us how to be a light of God's glory in the world. He said in, verse five, in chapter 5 and verse 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Last week, Pastor John talked about following Jesus' example of doing good works, and that's exactly how we, fa- ha- how we hallow the Father's name, by doing good works. And so how are your works? Is there an area of life where you know you've been holding back from God the obedience that he is due? The obedience you know what it is, but you've just decided, "Mm, not now, maybe next year. And why? What's keeping you from repentance and obedience? If your greatest passion is that God would be honored everywhere and in everything, then no corner of your heart is left off limits to the Savior who died for it. God's name is exalted when his word is obeyed. And lastly, God's name is exalted when his kingdom comes. The second petition of the Lord's Prayer flows out of the first. So we pray, hallowed be your name. And because of that, we pray, your kingdom come. And I'm going to spend the entire next sermon that I have talking about what that means, your kingdom come. But I want to mention it here because when we pray that the Father's name will be hallowed, we're praying that the whole world would see his worth and follow the king that he's given in Jesus. His kingdom comes every time a rebel sinner turns into a saint who lives under the reign of Jesus. And there will come a day, thanks be to God, when the fullness of our hope becomes visual to us, when Jesus returns and brings the fullness of his kingdom, and Malachi's prophecy will shine. And this is a fitting place to end, friend. Listen to what God says. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations." And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So the next time the news is bad, which is to say when you get home, okay, the next time it seems like the darkness will not lift and you're tempted to despair, remember this, he's coming. He's coming. And until that day, may our greatest passion be that his greatest glory would be shown everywhere and in everything. So please pray with me. O oh, our Father who loves us, who spared no expense, chiefly the blood of his own Son, to redeem us in that love, hallowed be your name magnify and glorify it in the midst of a world in rebellion just as you magnified and glorified it in the midst of our hearts that were in rebellion to you when you saved us we praise you that your grace is sovereign that you draw all those to yourself for whom christ died and that we are among them because of your great love may we work and pray labor and hope that your name would be glorified in everything and everywhere. May your grace and protection cover the faithful churches of Canada who stand against tyranny. May we stand and pray with them. And whatever the future looks like for us here in the United States, Lord, we know that the only hope of our nation is the gospel. So may we be bold in declaring it, that God saves sinners through Christ. And it's in his name that we rejoice, in his name that we rest, in his name that we hope, and in his name that we pray. Amen.